Father, we thank you once again for blessing us with the freedom to be here, with the measure of health that you've given to each one of us. Thank you for for providing for our needs day by day. Please grant, Father, that we may look at the way you've provided for us in the past and look to the future without fear, knowing that you will provide for us in your way. Please guide us tonight as we look into your word again. May your spirit be our teacher, and may he preserve unity among us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Okay. This is class number nine, but we're not going to have class number ten. Okay? We're going to finish this term tonight. But I looked at the material, and it's doable. That's the first reason. The second and more fundamental reason is that I'm thinking about taking my wife on vacation next week. So, we'll see if that works out. Okay, tonight we're going to be talking about the present roles and ministries of Christ and his future ministries. And if you're following this in your notes, I think it's Christology Notes Part 2, starting on page 29. Okay? By the way, those of you who don't have notes, I think Andrew will take care of you. We have notes in the back. All right? Let's talk about the present roles of Christ. He is fulfilling a number of roles in his present ministry. He is head over the body. He's the giver of gifts to the body. He's the high priest for believers. He's the bridegroom in preparation. And he is still creator and still God. Pat, you're looking at me funny. No, no. Okay, all right. I always like to know when I've said something heretical, okay? What's, what's notable here by its absence, and this is really a topic we'll get into next term when we talk about ecclesiology and eschatology, is that you don't see the word king here, okay? Now, it's common for us to say that Christ is our king, And I believe he is our king in the sense that that is a role that he is appointed to and that is a role that he will one day exercise and we recognize that he's appointed to that and he will one day exercise it. But I don't think you can find anywhere in the New Testament where it says that Christ is the king over the church. His role as king is awaiting his second coming ministry. And we'll see that next term. Okay, let's talk about him in his role as head over the church. Now, I'm using the term head here as a general term, but there are a number of figures in the New Testament that describe this role of headship. There's the actual word head. Let's look at some of these passages. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Now that's simply a statement that Christ is head over the church. Let's look at another passage, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Christ gives gifts, and the goal of that, starting in verse 15, is that speaking the truth in the love, I'm sorry, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, Paul is saying that in Christ's role as head of the church, he causes growth of the body. Now, it's interesting. Within this idea of headship is certainly direction. But the emphasis that's given in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 is his role as head in causing growth. And what we will see is that he carries out that role by giving gifts to the church. And that will come up in just a few moments. Okay, another figure in the New Testament that describes his headship in the broad sense is that he is the chief cornerstone of the temple. Again, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, what's the concept of a cornerstone? By the way, does anybody's text say capstone? I'm curious. Or keystone? No? Okay. Some translations do. There's a little bit of an argument as to whether this is talking about the capstone in an arch or whether it's talking about the cornerstone that would be laid at one of the corners of a building. Most translations translate it as cornerstone, and I'm inclined to take it that way because we have a reference to being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You get the idea that this is something at the base. It's the foundation. Does anybody know what role the cornerstone had in ancient architecture? Bob? It was where they would make sure that the building was true. Okay. There was something special about that stone. What was it? Perpendicular. Yeah, it had perpendicular, well-trimmed sides so that a surveyor could sight down the side of that cornerstone and say, guys, the wall is drifting this way, straighten it out. That cornerstone would provide the basic uh, proper dimensions and guidance for the building, uh, for the construction of that building. Now, in that figure, I think we could see a tie-in with the concept in Romans 8 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. If he is the cornerstone in the temple... And we are stones in the temple. The idea is that we should follow the direction and the style and the plan that is determined by Christ who is the cornerstone. Okay? That makes sense? You with me? Okay. Now another figure 
is the idea that Christ is the vine of which believers are the branches. You all know this passage in John chapter 15. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not going to go and exposit that passage. But if the vine, and when he says vine, I believe he means the stem and the roots. Okay? If he is the vine and we are the branches, what is that figure saying about his role? What does he do for us? Okay, he sustains us. He is the source of life. We need our connection to him in order to be fruitful. Okay, another figure. He's called the shepherd of the sheep. And this one we know very well. There's that whole passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, being the gate, etc. What is what is his role as shepherd suggest to you? What does that figure indicate? Well, he mentioned there is also the I'm a shepherd and the sheep know me. Okay. And that's what a shepherd does. The sheep knows the shepherd. Okay. And they follow him. Exactly. Okay. The sheep know the shepherd. Go ahead, John. He provides protection. He provides protection. Okay. There's a relationship. There's protection. You know, there are two kinds of sheepdogs in the world. Do you know that? There are sheepdogs who look like sheep, and there are sheepdogs who look like wolves. And the sheepdogs who look like who look like sheep guide the flock by making the flock follow them. The sheepdogs who look like wolves guide the flock by scaring the heck out of them. And I think when Christ says that he is the shepherd of the sheep, he's talking about the first kind of role. The sheep know him. He protects them. You know, Psalm 23, he leads them to the place where they find what they need. Green pasture, clean water, protection in the valley of the shadow of death, all those figures refer to a relationship of protection and provision. Okay, another figure which I think is related to Christ's broad role as head is the idea that he is the bridegroom of the bride. I know that sounds redundant. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. This is an interesting figure. It's really saying that Christ is preparing his own bride. Now, I don't know whether that concept has any precedent in Jewish culture. Did the groom work on the bride to make her beautiful? I don't think so. I think that was the bride's job. But in Christ's role as the bridegroom, he's doing something special, isn't he? You know, it's kind of like that uh, that allegory, and it's in the book of Ezekiel, where God says he was walking by and he saw Israel, and Israel was a baby who'd been cast off, who still had the umbilical cord attached to her, 
left in a field and he picks her up and he washes her and he clothes her and he raises her and he makes her beautiful. It's kind of sad the way that story ends because she runs away from him and cheats on him. But in a sense, there's a similar thing going on here. Christ takes individuals in their sinful state, redeems them, and then does what with them? What's this figure saying that he does? Sanctifies. Okay. What's he doing with us? Well, that will happen in time. In this figure, okay, what's he doing with the church as his bride? Okay, he's preparing the church, and what's he preparing the church for? What does a groom want to do with his bride? He wants to marry her. Okay, He's preparing us for the time when we will be united with him in the fulfillment of this figure of bride and groom. And I believe that will happen on the day of the rapture as we will discuss next term when we get to eschatology. Okay? What we're doing, by the way, is we're opening up a lot of topics that we're going to carry on later further. Becca? So, I'll ask the uh, dumb question. No, there's no dumb question. Because I've always wondered this, but, you know, you don't ever ask this question. No, no, please ask it. <laughs> I might even be able to answer it. I'm sure you will, because I've heard you say other off-the-wall things. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, hit me. Um, so I never understood this analogy because, you know, we're human, and so when we think of marriage, we think of sure, sex. sure. So I don't understand the analogy. Okay, well, good. And why? Good, God, good, good. Why God uses that analogy? Okay. What, how do we as humans disassociate? Exactly, that from it? exactly. What we need to do is that we need to recognize that our perspective is backwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. Marriage is an illustration of what God does. And it looks back to what well, yeah, and it looks back to what God does. Okay? God created man for fellowship with himself. And we are destined for that and one day we will have it. We'll have a face-to-face relationship with him which will be of a spiritually intimate nature. Now, during our times on this earth, partly because we're sinners, we are not capable of that relationship with him, but we are capable of another relationship that involves close intimacy, and that is the relationship of marriage. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at God's description of his relationship with the nation of Israel, he will say, I called you to be my bride. He will say, I have called you to be faithful to me. He will say that when you worship idols, that is adultery. He will say, when you as a nation of Israel seek help from foreign nations instead of coming to me, that is adultery. Both of those things are viewed as adultery. And the concept there is not that we're failing to, or that Israel was failing to have sex with God. Okay, and I'm glad you asked the question. 
the failure there is the failure to look to the one who is your head for what he offers to provide for you. And for Israel, he offered spiritual fellowship. He offered uh, material and physical provision. Um, he offered everything that they needed in reality. But when they found themselves, for example, threatened in war, what did they say? They said, we want a king like the nations have. When they found themselves uh, threatened by the natural world, drought, famine, locusts, whatever, the right thing for them to do was to seek help from God, but what they would often do is they would go to the false gods who offered to provide those things for them. So I think what we really need to do is we need to recognize that we've got it upside down. Marriage illustrates a proper relationship with God, but the proper relationship with God is the ultimate thing of which marriage is an inadequate representation. And if you look at the, the concepts of fidelity and infidelity, they work in both of these relationships, but in slightly different spheres. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. 31 and 32 of Okay, good. Good. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> what, what you've just said is that Paul is telling us that the parallels there are very real, but they speak of a higher reality, don't they? Um, and, and you're right. In the upper room discourse, when Christ says to the Father, I want them to be in me and you to be in them, etc., it's talking about the establishment of a kind of intimacy of which we are not even capable at this moment. But you know, you go to 1 John chapter 3 and it says, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. You know, um, that's looking forward to the day when the barriers that separate us from intimacy with God will be removed. So, I think that's really the way we need to look at this. And again, the ideas of fidelity and infidelity work very well in these two realms. And by the way, one of the reasons that God is so upset about infidelity in human marriage is that it is a mark against him. It's an illustration of our failure, and, um, and it shames him. You know, if he wants spiritual fidelity with him, then we should also be evidencing sexual fidelity and emotional fidelity with our spouses. That was not a stupid question at all. Okay. All right. Another way in which Christ is head over the church, he is the second Adam to the new race of believers. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We could also go to Romans chapter 5, where this concept is laid out in quite a bit of detail. 
I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 15. Did I say second? Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's this very subtle but real sort of inverted symmetry in the idea that we all came out of Adam and once you're redeemed in Christ, in a sense, we all go back into Christ. And I don't, I've been trying to illustrate this graphically for 15 years and I still can't make it work. But this, the concept is there that Christ is the second Adam. And in a sense, and Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, as we all bear the image of Adam, one day we will all bear the image of Christ. And in a sense, our racial identity will be changed. Instead of being the sons of Adam, we will become the sons of God. Now, positionally, we already, we already are, right? We are sons of God today. But the image that we continue to bear still looks a whole lot like who? Like Adam. One day, that image is going to be gone and we will bear an unsullied and unmarred image of the Father. Now just summing these up quickly, the expression head, when it's used explicitly, I think indicates direction and purpose. The idea of the cornerstone designates design, structure, and orderliness. The figure, figure of the vine indicates continuing source and the sustenance of life. The figure of the shepherd indicates protection and guidance. The figure of the bridegroom denotes love and grooming, if you will. I don't know why a bridegroom is called a groom, but what Christ is doing to the church is what? He's grooming the church. There may be some linguistic basis for that connection. I don't know. And the idea of Christ being the second Adam denotes the restoration of a proper image of God. Okay? Any questions on these things? There's a lot more to study here. There's a lot of deep stuff. It's quite interesting. Now, Christ is also the giver of gifts to the body. Now, when we think about spiritual gifts, we commonly think of the Holy Spirit as distributing the gifts, and Scripture does teach that. But it also teaches that Christ distributes the gifts and I think what we need to recognize there again is this idea of functional subordination who sent the son the father who sent the spirit the son as the son did the father's bidding I believe the spirit does the son's bidding so it's not wrong to say that Christ is involved in the spirit's work of giving gifts to the body there's no contradiction there now, a key passage here from Ephesians chapter 4, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when that happens, I believe that his job of preparing the bride will be complete. And the day will come. It's fitting that the one who gave his life for the creation of the body should also be the one who equips the body to express his life. Isn't that what we do? Remember how the book of Luke began? If you look at the Gospel of Luke, Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, Luke starts out by saying, uh, let's see, I'm sorry, it's not Luke I'm looking for, it's the book of Acts. Okay, look at the very beginning of the book of Acts. Luke says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, Luke doesn't go on to say it, but I think what he's saying is that the book of Acts is about all the things that Jesus continued to do and teach, and to do them through the agency of the Holy Spirit. What's the book of Acts about? It's about the creation of the church and the church being launched on its program of expressing the life of Christ on earth. Fulfillment of the Great Commission, growing in sanctification, reaching out, bringing in Jews, bringing in Gentiles, doing all those things that Christ died and rose again so that we could do. Okay. A third way in which Christ is presently ministering is that he is the high priest over the body. Now, the New Testament uses two different words to describe this role. It uses the term intercessor. The Greek word for that is entugkano. Nobody's ever heard that word. Now, the second one is advocate, and the Greek word for that is parakletos. And we've all heard that word. I don't know why none of us have heard entugkano. I've never heard it used in the pulpit. I think parakletos, we like that um, because you know that's where we get the word paraclete, which is just borrowed from Greek, the idea of someone who comes alongside to help. But actually, both of these words are used in Scripture, and they describe his role as high priest. Now, let's just look at a couple of these. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, 27. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, here, the description is specifically of the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm inclined to think, however, that the Holy Spirit is acting as the agent of Christ here. And it's the idea of intercession. Um, let's look at 834. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now there it's clearly Christ doing it. Okay, that's this word, intercessor. 
Now Christ is also our advocate. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, that's, that's the word. And Belen isn't here tonight, but that's the Spanish word, abogado, lawyer, advocate. Um, these words, by the way, are very close in meaning. It's a little difficult to distinguish them. But let me show you. Uh, I've studied them a bit, these two terms in context, and I think there is a fine distinction between them, but I wouldn't try to push it. Christ as our intercessor is working at the highest level. He is at the right hand of God. Important concept, he's always successful. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews tells us? He's always successful. He never fails when he intercedes for us. Now here's an important idea about his intercessory work. It's only available to Christians. Now does that mean we shouldn't pray for unbelievers? It doesn't. Okay? But it does mean that there is a certain thing that Christ does that's only available to believers. And when we pray for unbelievers, we shouldn't just be praying, obviously, for God to help them with the particular problems they face, but to bring them into a relationship with Christ where they have access to this kind of ministry, which is very special. His ministry as intercessor is available because the Father willingly sent his Son. Now, the reason I put this up here is that we need to avoid an idea that Jesus is our friend and the Father is our enemy and Jesus is up there saying to the mean Father, don't be mean to my friends. Okay? That can't be true, can it? Who sent the Son? The Father sent the Son. Now when in John 3.16 it says that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son... You could take the term God as to mean the triune God, and that wouldn't be wrong, but I think it's really saying that the Father sent the Son. And if the Father sent the Son, and he did it in love, and he did it because he loved the world, then the idea that Jesus is up there trying to stop the mean old Father from being cruel to us when we sin is all wrong, isn't it? His intercessory work is available because the Father wants him to intercede for us. This is a cooperative effort. Um, that's right. Good. Good. I mean, Christ's role will also include judge. So it would be wrong to view the Father as the one who judges and the Son as the one who's merciful. Okay? That's a wrong concept. I had a student in one of my classes at the seminary this this term. I may have mentioned this before. She said, the nature of God changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament because in the Old Testament, he was mean and judgmental, and in the New Testament, God is love. And I tried to straighten her out on that. I don't know whether I succeeded. <laughs> 
Laura. That's a great question. And then a third question is, should we pray to the Holy Spirit at all? Yeah. There are very few prayers to the Holy Spirit in the Bible, although there may, there may be a few. Um, I don't think it's wrong to speak to any member of the Trinity in prayer. <laughs> I think it would be silly and even blasphemous to say something to Jesus and then say something to the Father and have them be contradicting each other. You know, obviously every member of the Trinity hears everything that we say. Um, but in our prayers, would it be wrong to pay attention to the different roles that the members of the Trinity have? I mean, for example, if you believe, I don't, but if you believe that one can ask the Holy Spirit for a particular gift, I personally believe the Holy Spirit chooses and he gives us our gifts at the moment we get saved. But some people think that gifts are given later and they can be given in response to prayer. I don't think it would be wrong to say, Holy Spirit, you know, I'd like to have this particular gift. Will you give it to me? Um, I don't think it would be wrong to say, Lord Jesus, right now I am facing sexual temptation and scripture says that you have faced every kind of temptation that men face and because you can identify with me, please help me. You know, I wouldn't pray that prayer to the Father, by the way. And I have to tell you, I get annoyed every time somebody stands up in church and says, Father, thank you for coming and dying for my sins. That gives me fits. And I hear it in church about every other Sunday. Because the Father didn't die for our sins. So yeah, your, your question is very much to the point. I, I think in our prayers we should recognize the different roles that the members of the Trinity have, but also recognize that they are in a cooperative, cooperative effort to accomplish the same goals, they have the same desires, um, you know, it's it's kind of, it's hard to picture the Trinity. Plan. A good example is uh, in the uh, Acts 7 where Stephen prays, Lord, do not charge them with uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So there is. And yeah, and that's a that's a prayer directed to a specific member of the Trinity. Absolutely. And there are lots of prayers by by Paul where he says, I pray to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't think it's wrong to pray to specific members of the Trinity. In fact, I think it's a good thing to do. You know, the Trinity is a difficult concept, but it is clear that there are three persons within the Trinity, and in a sense, we need to recognize those distinctions but never in such a way that we have the idea that one of them could know something and the other not know it or whatever. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question, but it was a good one. It also, I mean, it John. also says in Scripture that you refer to God as Abba Father. Yes, you know, good. Good. Is, you know, yeah. We're, we're encouraged to pray to him in the, in the role of Father. And I, 
think, again, that is a reference to a particular member of the Trinity. But is it wrong to pray to God as a whole? No, certainly not. Okay. Now, as far as his role as advocate, these are some of the things that come out of those passages. His role as advocate is specifically related to the issue of sin. Okay, we saw that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Yes. Just then back up just a little bit from what you were talking about. Okay. You know, Romans Romans eight twenty six speaks to that too. Okay. You know, it says, But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that cannot that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows knows the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Good. And, and, right, and there is a particular work of one person of the Trinity. Yes, you're right on target. Um, I think sometimes we have a tendency to sort of view the Trinity as a pot of oatmeal. And, and, and you know, there is distinction between the persons of the Trinity. And we need to recognize those distinctions without falling into tritheism. I don't think we're falling into tritheism. But I think you're exactly right, Pat. You can see those roles at work in many places in Scripture. Now, Christ is always eligible to advocate, to be our advocate, because he is righteous. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, it's actually chapter 5, it stated that in order to be a high priest, Christ must be human, and he must be without sin himself. A normal human priest has to deal with his sins before he can serve as an advocate, but because Christ has no sin, he's always eligible to be our advocate. There's never a time when he's disqualified. You know, in ancient Israel, you could have gone to the temple and wanted to offer a sacrifice, and it was potentially possible that there wouldn't be any priest who at that moment was in a ceremonially clean condition where he could serve to uh, bring that offering before God. But Christ as our advocate is never unclean because he is sinless. Okay, I think his role as advocate deals with accusations of Satan before the Father, there are hints of this in a number of places. And I think we need to recognize that his role of advocate becomes effective in the context of our confession of sin. When we refuse to acknowledge and confess our sin before God the Father, I believe that in a sense that holds back the advocacy ministry of Christ. Think of 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says, Men, live in an understanding way with your wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think what he's really saying is that if you're living in continual sin against your wife and you're unwilling to confess it, there is a sense in which God takes the phone off the hook. Now, I think the same thing is true here. We're told in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins but we do need to confess. Now, does that mean that a believer who for a time is persisting in sin and is being stubborn about it, does that mean that he is kicked out of the family? No, it doesn't. 
But I do think that it means that temporarily he doesn't have the benefit of Christ's advocacy before the Father. Does that make sense to you? Okay. Let's go on for another five or possibly ten minutes and finish this up. Okay, Christ as bridegroom and creator. Okay, I'm just going to hit these really quickly. We've already talked about his role as bridegroom in preparation. We'll see next term that one of the things that Christ is doing right now is he's preparing apartments, or in old translations it would say mansions in the Father's house for us, and he will take us there at the rapture. His role as creator God is simply a continuation of his work as the sustainer of creation. Now somebody will ask, was he doing that while he was on earth? And I don't know the answer to that question. Okay? Did he hand that role over to the Father or the Holy Spirit and say, hold this for me while I go to earth for 36 years? I don't know. I'm inclined to think that he was carrying it on in his divine nature. Um, because Philippians chapter 2 seems to indicate that when he emptied himself, it had to do with not exercising his divine power for his own benefit. But I don't see anything there to indicate that he stopped exercising his divine power for the benefit of others. So I really do think that he continued to do that. But when Jesus said to the Father in his high priestly prayer, Return me to the glory which I had with you, before the foundation of the world, he's saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back into the throne room and I'm going to resume the role that I had up there. Okay? All right. Very quickly. And this this is largely redundant. Okay? We talked about roles. Now I'm going to talk about functions and functions are just what you do when you have a role. Okay? Present functions of Christ. He's building the church. He's interceding and advocating for believers. He's preparing a place for his bride. And he's sitting and reigning at the Father's right hand. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think I'd rather have an apartment in the Father's house than in a mansion on the other side of a hill. You know? That... That old hymn was kind of messed up, actually. Okay. Future works of Christ. And again, this, this is just a snapshot of what we're going to be looking at next term. Okay? His future works, and these are essentially all associated with the second coming and beyond that point, include gathering the church at the rapture, raising the dead, judging all men, rewarding the saints, and ruling as king in time, which is the millennium, and eternity. Okay, we'll be looking at these in our course on eschatology. I'm just kind of tossing them up there as a teaser. Okay, now just so you know, we're going to take a break. We're not going to meet for the next two Wednesdays. We're going to start on June 3rd, And if we go the full 10 weeks, that will take us through August 5th. And the courses that we'll cover will be ST3, which is pneumatology, the study of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
By the way, some of you may think that I'm shortchanging the Holy Spirit in our discussion of soteriology. This is That's where we will cover the discussion of his work in the process of salvation. Angelology is the study of angels and demons, and ecclesiology is the study of the nature of the church. And this one is kind of interesting because we'll talk about different kinds of church polity, the question of whether the church is the new Israel, those kinds of things. The second course will be ST5 eschatology, and that's going to be a study of the doctrine of the end times. And just so you know, in this course, I am going to be teaching you premillennialism. But in the process of teaching you that, I will also teach you the other systems and tell you why I hold the system that I do, and I will try not to shortchange the other systems. But I have to tell you, I am strongly committed to premillennialism for biblical reasons. So that's what you're going to get, basically. Okay? Now, the interesting thing, and the reason I've set it up this way, is that there is a very strong connection between ecclesiology and eschatology. And it's not immediately apparent, but it will become apparent as these courses unfold. If you have friends or folks you know who would like to attend these classes, please encourage them to come and tell them it's okay that they weren't at the other four classes. You will all benefit more than they will, but they will largely stand on their own. Okay? Um, uh, is there anything else we need to discuss about that? I can't think of anything at this moment. Um, do you have any questions about that?